All right, well, I'm super glad to be in church with all of you today, um, and uh, I want to wrap up this series that we're doing called um, the Missio Day, the, the mission of God. Last week, I spent some time in the state of Virginia. I was doing some research on St. Benedict, this project that I'm working on, and as part of that, I visited the University of Virginia, which is, I didn't know this until last week, is the first public university in the country. And, and so uh, it was int really interesting to see the school and see the architecture and hear some of the stories and some of the legends there. Um, and if you would have told me before last week that there are dorm rooms at the University of Virginia that are heated by individual fireplaces, um, I would not have believed you. Uh, if you would have told me that, that the students live in these dorm rooms and that the college provides firewood and stacks it in neat little stacks right outside their doors, and also rocking chairs with their names on them, on these little brackets, these little, pant, these little signs on the back of their rocking chairs that are they're so valued that they're chained to the, the, the ground. I, I wouldn't have believed it. I would have said, okay, maybe like in the 1800s they're doing stuff like that, wood-burning stoves in dorm rooms. Can you even imagine the liability uh, related to that? Uh, but last week, I saw it. I touched the firewood. It's true. They do this. I took pictures of the rocking chairs. Um, this is looking out into the main lawn of, of the university. And even, even though I still find it really surprising that college kids at a major research university are building fires at night in their dorm rooms to, to stay warm in the winter, um, I, I now believe it's true. It's strange, but I know that it's true. And the reason that I believe that it's true is very simple. I saw it. I saw it. Like I touched it myself. I know for myself, because I've experienced it myself, this is actually real. This happens. Uh, if you would have told me about 10 years ago that there are these churches carved out of single stones in buildings, buildings almost the size of this one, two, three-story buildings carved out of monolithic buildings carved out of single rocks underground in northern Ethiopia, which have been the home of this worshiping Christian community, which has not been interrupted for a thousand years, I would have said, that sounds crazy. I would have said, that sounds like something out of a Tolkien novel or some sort of fantasy story, right? Um, but in 2013, I saw them myself. If you would have told me 10 years ago that you could carve a church out of a, out of a single rock, I would, have, I would have said, a thousand years ago, right, I would have said, that's impossible. I, I just don't even, I can't even conceive of how that would be possible. But then I, I walked inside. I breathed the cool air. I touched the carved stone that had been worn smooth like glass by a thousand years of worshipers. I prayed with the monks there in the candlelight before dawn. If you would have described this 10 years ago, I'd have thought it was the stuff of imagination. I just didn't have the capacity to imagine such a thing, but then I saw it. I touched it, and I believed it was real. And I'm sure that you all have stories sort of like this in some form, some fashion, something that you could not have conceived of at a certain point in your life. You had no real capacity or even category for such a thing, but then you had an experience, you touched something, you saw something, you went through something, and, and now you know, you know something. Uh, at another time in my life, I, if you would have told me that those with addictions could be healed and could become strong again and healthy, or if you would have told me that uh, women who were said to be infertile could give birth, or if you would have told me that marriages could be restored even after betrayal, I wouldn't have believed it. 
It's not that I wanted to refuse to believe it. I just simply didn't have the category for it. I'd never seen it. But, but now I've seen all of that. I've held the babies. I've seen the changed lives. I've had dinner with the couples two, three, ten years later and seen the richness of their relationship. What was once hypothetical, I've now experienced in real life. I've now witnessed it. I'm a witness. I'm one who has seen. I'm one who has touched. I know now. So today I want to wrap up this Easter series with a short teaching, and the teaching is really all about the power of experiencing truth in real life. This is all about the power of experiencing truth in real life. We've been talking about the Missio Dei, which is this Latin term that you read often in ancient Christian writings. It refers to, it's, it, what it means is the mission of God. And we've seen in the Gospels how those who witness the resurrection of Jesus then join the mission of God. And how this experience of witnessing the resurrection, seeing and touching what they did not before have any sort of conceivable capacity to even imagine, how this then takes people from being broken to being people who are working for the restoration of all things. This is the game changer for the early church, right? So I want to look at Luke chapter 24 together. It's on page 738. If you're in the Bibles that we've handed out, scroll to it on your phone if that's helpful to you, but you'll want to see this in context, Luke chapter 24. We're going to look at the part of the story that comes right at the heels of the Emmaus Road story. In fact, it is part of the Emmaus Road story, but I kind of surprisingly, I guess, I haven't ever really preached on this part of the story. Um, The previous part, if you've been part of our community for any amount of time, is very familiar to you, so let me just give you some really quick background. In the story, the context of the story is this. It's the first Easter morning, but nobody knows it's Easter yet. Nobody knows that yet. A couple of days ago, Jesus was killed on a cross. He was crucified on a Roman cross. Early this morning, he was raised from the dead. And all of Luke 24 is a series of stories about people who are encountering the resurrected Jesus for the very first time. And the main story, which is the story from which our community draws its name, is the story of a couple of people who leave the community. They are so devastated by their broken hopes, by their unmet expectations in Jesus, that they leave their community, they leave Jerusalem, and they're on their road to a place called Emmaus. They're hitting the road. And at some point along the way, they come along with a third traveler. A third traveler walks up behind them and joins them. They encounter him. They talk with him. They end up having dinner with him. And at dinner, that third traveler breaks bread. And at that moment, they recognize the third traveler is Jesus. And then he disappears from their sight. The two men run back seven miles to Jerusalem. They rejoin their community, and now their message is this. It is true. And the end of that story is verse 35, which says this. Luke writes, Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Now I want to read with you what comes immediately next. Verse 36 of Luke 24. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. 
He said to them, why are you troubled? Why did doubts rise in your minds? Look at my feet, my hands and my feet. It is I, myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe because of joy and amazement, he asked them, and I just love this, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. All right, so we'll, we'll go through that slowly now together, and I want to point out a few things. Primarily, the point this morning is this. I want to highlight this morning this beautiful process that Jesus brings his followers through, and it is the process of coming to faith. That's what I want to talk about, the process of coming to believe. And then I want to point out the immediate consequence of that process, all right? So let's go back up to verse 36, and I just want to point out a few things. Here's verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. So imagine this. It's a room, and everybody's talking. Everybody's talking. Have you been in a room like that? Nobody's listening. Everybody's talking. They're sharing their own experiences from the day. Each of them has had a slightly different experience. They're just talking about it. And the stories are largely about these brief, mysterious encounters. Or in some cases, I heard this happened. And they got to share their rumor that they heard about Jesus. Have you ever been in a room where people are so excited to share their part of the story that there's very little listening happening and there's just a whole lot of talking? You almost feel like the person can't wait for you to finish your sentence because they've got a sentence that they want to give. This is what the, the dynamic feels like at the beginning of verse 36. And then in the second half of the verse, Luke writes that while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them. So suddenly he is there. It's like, imagine you're filming this for a movie, and you're going to pan in on all the faces of the disciples, and you're just going to scan across the room, right? And everybody's talking, and you're just focused on their faces, and you get to the end, and then you come back, and you're still focused on their faces, and what? Jesus is there all of a sudden, right? He is just, suddenly he's there. We're not told anything about how he enters. We're not told that he walks in. Sometimes you're told how he comes into a room. Not this time. Suddenly he's just there, and they notice him and they shut up. They stop talking, and now only Jesus is talking, and what he says is simply, peace be with you. Sometimes when I'm talking with people or counseling people, they will say to me, I bet Jesus would say this to me, or I feel like Jesus feels like this about me right now. And, and sometimes we project the way we feel about other people onto Jesus, and so often our perspective of what Jesus would say were he to walk in the door right now isn't exactly correct. I prefer to base our understanding of what Jesus might say to each of us today on scripture here. I think if he were to come in today in the flesh, this is what he would say to us. He would say, peace 
be with you. That's the first thing he would say. Peace be with you. This is where we get the phrase or the greeting that we use here every week at Emmaus. Peace be with you. Sometimes people say, hey, isn't that a Catholic thing you guys do? No, that's a Jesus thing we do. All right, that's a Jesus thing. And it's awesome, right? Following the proclamation of the truth, get this, I mean, look at the narrative. Following the proclamation of the truth, that Jesus is alive, that is happening pretty clumsily, frankly, by a room full of preachers, here comes this greeting from Jesus himself, peace be with you. I just think that's awesome. And what's somewhat surprising is the disciples' reaction to Jesus' words. Look what happens in verse 37. They were startled and frightened, thinking he was a ghost. Literally, thinking he was the spirit is what it says in Greek. Notice that 10 seconds ago, uh, they were saying, it's true. Jesus has risen. But apparently, there's still a lot of mystery around this truth. Apparently, there's still a bit of confusion around this truth. Nobody knows really what this means on a practical level. They believe at some level, that they're, but their experience of Jesus' resurrection have been so mystical that they don't really fully get it. And so when Jesus stands among them and speaks to them, they are startled and frightened, which is interesting because initially, when we encounter God, often... Our reaction is if he feels like he's confronting us, or maybe that's just the way he feels to us. Often we're like startled, like, whoa, you want to be in on this? You got something to say to me? You want to walk into my room? Right? Their initial response is, is fear, and, and, and his presence apparently feels a bit confrontational. His being there is just so weird, is it not? It's not what they expected. So their brains scramble to make sense of it, and their first thought is, it's Jesus' spirit. It's a ghost. Isn't that interesting? It's like they believe in Christ's resurrection at some sort of spiritual level, but they really aren't sure what to make of it when it shows up on the physical level or in what we might say in real life. Oh, they're all good on a spiritual level, but where it starts to be a little bit uncomfortable is when Jesus shows up in real life. Have you ever just been completely surprised by somebody? Like you just saw somebody that you didn't expect in a place that you didn't expect. One time when I was in college, I hitched a ride home without telling my folks, and I got there pretty late at night, and I came in through the garage in the back door, and I went up the steps of the sunroom, and I turned left past the kitchen, and I hopped over the back of the couch, and I landed on it right next to my mom. Do you know what she did? That's what I kind of thought she would do. I thought there'd be a reaction, but she just looked at me. (laughs) She she just looked at me. Not the kind of, not a scream, not a hug, not a punch to the shoulder. She just looked at me. It was like, in one sense, I made sense. But in another sense, I I made no sense. (laughs) She just stared at me. She just looked at me for a while. I'm like, hey, mom. It's me. But this has happened to me, too. This has happened to me. Somebody one time, Carmen, surprised me at an airport when we were dating, and I was like, what? I did not expect you to come out of that space, right? I'm just, it's like, and then you ask all those silly questions like, what are you doing here? Right? <laughs> how did you get here? It was a plane. Okay, good. Right? This is what we go through. So how does Jesus then respond to their being frightened? They are shocked 
And, and not just like, wow, but they're frightened. They're, they're afraid. They're frightened. They think he's a ghost or a spirit. Here's his response. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why did doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. What's significant about his hands and his feet? Right, you got the scars from his death on the cross still where he was attached to the wood through his hands and through his feet, right? So essentially, Jesus is saying three things to them at this moment. First thing, yes, it's me. Second thing, yes, I died. Third thing, yes, I am alive again. I mean, he's, he's, rolling, he's rolling the basic story out for them again. And the realization journey, the process of believing, it just moves so gradually for the disciples. First, they're startled and frightened. Jesus shows him his scars, shows them his scars. And then next, Luke writes, and while they still did not believe, because of joy and amazement, so their emotional reaction is changing, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate it in their presence. And so first they don't believe because they're frightened, and so Jesus says, hey, look, it's me. Touch and see. And then they don't believe because of joy and amazement. And so he eats in front of them as if to say, see, it's me and I'm real. I'm real. I'm not a ghost. I'm here with you in real life. All right, so you tell me, what is the, what is the crisis of this story? What is the conflict in, in this in this story that we're reading together, what is the, what is the thing that needs to be resolved? What, what, what would you say it is? What's the problem? Lack it's lack of faith. I think it's exactly it. It is the disciples' lack of faith or lack of belief. That's the problem. They just can't quite get there. Great answer. What is the reason, second question, what is the reason for their lack of belief? Lack of understanding. What is the lack of understanding maybe based in? Sure, they don't understand the scriptures. That's going to come in a minute. Good. What is, the, what is the essential problem? What do they think he is at first? They think he's a ghost, right? Essentially, and I'm talking really basically, their initial lack of belief is rooted in a lack of what they perceive to be a lack of physical evidence. A lack of real life show me stuff. That's where they're, let's say they, they've been proclaiming his resurrection already, but when he shows up in real life, they don't believe it because there's, they, they perceive there to be a lack of physical evidence. Jesus just appears, poof, in a room. That's weird. They see him. They initially think it's a spiritual reality, not a physical one. And because they see him at, at first as a spiritual reality, he is in a sense for them less real. He feels to them to be less than real. And I think this is a really important uh, dynamic to point out. In a sense, this is how we, this is how many of us, myself included, commonly experience Jesus. This is how we commonly experience Jesus, isn't it? Emotionally, spiritually, 
through some sense that we can't quite put our finger on. I mean, I was talking to Jesus this morning at my kitchen table, but he actually wasn't, like, I didn't actually see him there. Like, physically, he, I didn't know that he was there. I, I, so that's my relationship with him. I'm literally talking to Christ, and I believe I am, and yet I have no sense of assurance of a physical presence here. We read his words, we believe they're for us, and we speak to him, but much of the time we're like the disciples. We are troubled. Doubts rise in our minds. It's like we believe the story of the resurrection, but we're troubled by the story of the resurrection, and sometimes we doubt the story of the resurrection. And so if the crisis of the story is, that the, is the disciples' lack of faith, and the reason for their lack of faith is their perceived absence of physical evidence, then what in the end makes the difference? What in the end enables them to believe the truth? It's this. Here's what breaks through the disbelief. Here's what makes a difference for them and for us. They see, they touch, he eats. In other words, when the story is embodied... When the story takes on flesh, when we can see it and touch it and have lunch with it, now we get it, right? Now it feels real. Now it's truth in real life. When it breaks out of the pages of history, when it comes out of the imagined world of fantasy, uh, when, it, when it comes out of the not quite solid realm of spirituality and it lives in real life. It's then that the resurrected Jesus appears not as a spiritual presence, but as an embodied presence that the truth of the resurrection actually crashes in to real life. It's the embodied presence that does it. It's the embodied presence that does it. That's what makes a difference. And one more thing, which you mentioned a minute ago, Daryl, Jesus opens their minds. Right? So two things happen here, friends, that pull them to a place of what we would say um, of actually having faith. First, Jesus embodies the truth. He shows up physically, and he eats in front of them. Right? And secondly, he opens their minds. He enables, he enables them to perceive and comprehend the truth. And we need to hold these two things in tension because they both go together. We need a physical demonstration of the truth. If it just stays in the theoretical or the spiritual, frankly, it just doesn't get the job done. So we need to encounter spiritual truth through the physical. And we also need the grace of God to open our minds in a way that we cannot do by ourselves. It's both. It's both. Look at verse 44. Jesus said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. He's like going through it again, so they get it. And he's opening, then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. That's the gospel. The Messiah, the long-expected one, he's going to die, he's going to be raised again, and then the message, this story will be declared all over the world. Repent of your sins and receive right relationship with God. That's the story. 
That's the gospel. Jesus just, I mean, it's almost, you almost can't find a shorter summary of the gospel than this. This is the good news. And declaring this or demonstrating this is the missio day. This is what we're called to. This is what we're invited to be a part of. Jesus is like, see it? Hands, feet, fish. And then he's like, get it? Opens their minds. And then he leads into what Stephanie preached here last Sunday. Now go, go. Take this out and deliver this message wherever you go. The story ends with Jesus saying, you are my witnesses of these things. You're the ones. You're the ones who have seen it in real life. You're the ones that have touched it. So now you must carry on the Missio Dei. You must carry it to others. Jesus assures them they will have his power. They don't have to like drum it up themselves. He says in verse 49, I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until he's clothed you with power from on high. He's referring to the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, which is next Sunday, 50 days after Easter. And we'll talk about that next Sunday. Today, I want us to see how before Jesus ascends into heaven, into the right hand of the Father, he makes sure that his disciples know the truth. And I don't mean just intellectually. They believe it. They've touched it. They've tasted it. How do they know it? He has embodied the truth for them. He has demonstrated the truth for them in real life. And I think this is critical for all of us who want to join the Missio Dei, the mission of God. It's critical for all of us who are witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is critical for all of us who are Christian. We simply cannot just tell the truth, in other words. we got to embody the truth. The things, when I was searching for spiritual truth as a young teenager... As I am looking for some sort of sense of meaning and, and in looking into the claims of Christianity as a kid, people didn't just teach me the truth, they showed me the truth, and that's what made the difference, right? And I bet you could point to the people who did the same for you. The things that you actually know are the things which have been told to you and demonstrated to you in real life. You're convinced because you saw it lived out in that marriage, in that family, that guy who got recovery that actually stuck, you, saw, you know because you saw it. There is no shortcut. People believe what they see, what they touch, what they taste. It's not enough, parents, to just tell our kids the story. It's got to be real. We got to live it out. And, and I hope you don't hear me say, so try a lot harder. The power comes from God, but there needs to be this understanding on our part, I think, that just saying the right words isn't really going to cut it, that there needs to be this authentic conversion to Christ that our kids can look to as an example of the truth as they try to navigate their own situations. This is critical For all of us to understand, both as recipients of the truth, as well as those who are carrying the truth and sharing the truth with others. This is just critical for all of us. If you're seeking the truth here, if if I'm not a Christian, I'm just kind of listening in, my hope for you would be that you would find people who are authentically demonstrating the, the, the validity of this truth and that you would be convinced of something because you've Somebody in your life is sharing it with you on a level that makes sense. So this is critical to all of us. Let me end with the word specifically for moms uh, this morning. Because it is good and right to um, appreciate and to honor 
the women in our church, those who are serving us, and the church and our children. And I just want to say to you moms that at a level that is simply unparalleled in power and influence, you are our real life examples of truth and love. Amen. At a level that is, it's, it's, just, it's challenging to even honestly comprehend um, a figure in our lives whose impact plays a deeper role um, than the life of our mother. Your modeling the truth is what has convinced us what is real. You're living it out right in front of us. A love that is probably the closest thing to unconditional love that we ever experience outside of God himself. You're living that out, not in the ideal, but in the messiness. Taking kids to school, getting to work, making dinners, washing clothes, resolving conflict, solving problems, inspiring risk, teaching, leading. You're living out the love and the truth in real life is probably the only place we actually really experience love and truth because the love and truth that you embody for us is what we actually believe. It's what, we, it's what actually sticks. It's what convinces us of the truth that we are loved. There are some things that we'll never understand and some things that we'll never believe until we touch them until we see them, until the truth takes on flesh, until it is embodied. And then when truth has a body, when truth is embodied, and when God opens our minds to receive it, then we know. Then we know. So thank you for embodying God's love and truth and for being humble enough to know that you need God's help to embody God's love and truth. And may all of us embody the love and the truth of God for the world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. So first, Lord, I just thank you for uh, this story that seems, in my mind at least, to validate, validate uh, my need for, and our need for uh, real-life examples. And secondly, I pray for the grace that, that you, I pray you give us the grace that we need to become those real life examples for those who are looking to us for guidance and for, for affection. Um, may there be an authenticity in what we do and how we live, not a perfection, but an authenticity, a genuineness, a relying on you, but a true demonstration of your love that comes out somehow, comes out, and is perceived as authentic by those around us, we pray. Uh, that restoration would come, that the truth of the resurrection would make a difference, because it is embodied in us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.